Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. It's an awkward thing to say thanks be to God to that passage. You can have a seat. You're like, I don't know if I'm thankful for that one. So how about a little story? Um, I'm 20, 21, and I walk from my apartment in East Lansing, a college town where Michigan State goes, or Michigan State is, and I walk down this alleyway to a coffee shop at the end, and I'm meeting up with a guy named Brent. Uh, Brent is the type of person who was raised in a Christian home to two parents who are pastors. Brent goes on to go to Bible college, as you do uh, when you know, you're filled with zeal for the Lord. And then he continues and he goes to seminary to get his master's. And then Brent lands in Lansing, Michigan to uh, work with youth as a youth pastor. I get connected to him through like a sports ministry on campus and he was born and raised in San Diego. I was born and raised in San Diego and right there it's like kindred spirits. We're lamenting the winter as we're longing for the ocean. That's the kind of thing that sparked our relationship. And we're, we're going to connect there. And I don't remember why on this day, I don't even remember the time of year that it was, but uh, why we were meeting. It probably had to do something with like purity culture or something like that. And here I was living in sin and he was going to help. I don't know, speculation. But, but I do distinctly remember what it was that kind of shaped the whole contour of our conversation. This um, little coffee shop, as is the case in many college towns, is trying to be comfortable but not so comfortable because in like if you run a cafe you have to have turnover you need transactions so you need people to like I don't know be a little bit like situated to do their studying they pay rent with just coffee but not so much so this one they are out of business and this is why they had a fireplace they had like a waterfall it was the most comfortable place so Brent is like cozied up and he's reading a book The irony that he's reading it next to a fireplace is just coming to me now. But he's reading a book called Love Wins by an author named Rob Bell. And this is a book about heaven and hell and the fate of every person who ever lived. That's literally the subtitle, which that's a great subtitle. And I don't care what you, I don't know what you think about Rob Bell, but that is uh, a book about heaven and hell and every person who who ever lived. See, I was new to churchianity, so I didn't know how deep the fault lines of this inherited tradition ran. I didn't know that love winning would be a big deal. I was like, that sounds like something Jesus would do. That's agreeable, right? Well, what I, what I soon learned as uh, I started to talk to Brent about this book is that there's actually a whole array of perspectives. And um, Rob Bell had apparently ruffled some feathers with this book. I learned that there was a, a, a leading um, pastor of the day who had this little three-word tweet, farewell Rob Bell. And that little tweet ignited somewhat of like a firestorm of criticism. And it's, it's ironic that a book about love winning is the thing that ignites some sort of a firestorm. But uh, sociologically speaking, what this pastor was doing was the work of gatekeeping And he's essentially guarding the boundaries of who's in and who's out of a group. It would look something like this. You see, there's right inside of this, uh, inside of that circle is the clear marker of who's in. And when I know who's in, I know who's for me. 
But what also is true is, is, is I start to move outside of that circle. Okay, then I know who is against me. And that's the type of polarity that that boundary can create. And there's something about the human experience that wants to define where people stand in relation to one another. That's not an altogether bad thing. Like if you're at a sporting event and there's somebody who is wearing a jersey that maybe doesn't look like the rest of the jerseys, it's a, a clear marker of where I stand against where you stand. These can be helpful things, and we're constantly trying to make sense of this. But what's clear is that if you are inside the defined boundaries, and these could be boundaries of doctrine in a church or boundaries of ideology in the world, the group knows whether you are for or against them, friend or foe. And in Bell's case, he was quickly cast outside the camp because he pushed up against the boundary. He, he flirted with the boundary. He, it's like if he was this little X, and I had another slide which I would have done well to make, it was like he would be straddling both. You would be in and out at the same time. Very uncomfortable for the people who are in. They're not sure where do you stand, Rob Bell. And if you're wondering what the big deal is because you uh, have never heard of Love Wins or you, like me, thought Love Winning sounds like a pretty good thing, uh, here's the tension in a nutshell. Suppose that you go up to somebody and you tell them, God loves you. We're off to a good start. But then you go on and you say, God loves you. And he, he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. Which is not entirely untrue. In fact, that's like, you open up the gospels, you'll encounter that reality. But, but then you go on and you say, accept Jesus because 10 minutes from now, you might die. And if you die without having accepted Jesus's offer, then you will burn eternally in the fire of hell. What kind of God are you depicting to that person? That's part of the tension, but that's not the full extent. It goes on. Um, suppose you go up to someone and you tell them they're human father. Their, their actual father has a, has a gift and it's a gift given out of love. But if they reject the gift, then that father will torment them for the rest of their lives. What kind of father are you depicting in that moment? Do, do you get the tension? There, there's both cosmic and eternal stakes and there's interpersonal lived experience. It's like all wrapped up in this nutshell. It, this is the tension. And my guess is, is that f for many of us, those, those questions, suppose God does this and then th those questions, they make us a little squeamish, if not nervous. And they make us nervous because we have done a really good job in the church at like removing ourselves from that tension, almost ignoring the tension of what is known as the traditional doctrine of hell. It's a tension that's brought to the surface by those questions. It's a tension that's brought to the surface by Bell's work. And so my hope for today in keeping with this controversial church series is to lean into that tension. Just by way of reminder, uh, the people who call Gateway home and, and some folks outside of Gateway um, answered a question, what frustrates your faith? What is a barrier for people to follow Jesus? And then they wrote in a bunch of stuff. Hell was one of the top ones. So if you don't like what's said here today, I don't know, is it your fault? Is it mine? I don't, let's, maybe we'll share it together. So where do we start with this tension, I guess? Um, I, I would invite us to, to go back to our teaching text. 
So back in Matthew chapter 23, for a little context, the, the language that Jesus is, is, is employing the, and the language that Jesus is about to use in Matthew 23, 15 is some of the harshest rhetoric that available to Jesus in his day. These are called the woes of Jesus, but just listen to this again. Because Jesus is about to offer a prophetic rebuke to the people who claim to hold religious sway and authority. And to these folks, Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. And to be sure, there's a, a lot to unpack there. There's the groups of the teachers of the law, the scribes, that you might see them, or the Pharisees, this religious sect. There's a lot to unpack here, but to, to stay on track with our topic of hell today, just focus in on the end with me. Um, what is hell? And just allow, you don't have to say it out loud, uh, but allow your answer to populate in your mind. What is hell? Have any of you been thinking about this recently? You just wake up, I, I don't know, maybe you're having an existential crisis in this season and so you're like, yes, I have been thinking, that's why I wrote the question in. Is hell a literal place? Is it like if you dig down into the earth's crust and you get to the mantle, the liquid magma, are you like now with the residence of Satan? Is it an alternative reality? Or, or is hell as it's like held in the popular imagination like a place for the damned, those who are unrepentant sinners and then they're gonna bunk up with the Satan for all eternity? Like what, what is hell? And let me just ask it like another layer deep. Um, how does Jesus talk about hell? Because we might have some images that come to our mind that are held either in the popular imagination or in church or like my, my friend Brent sitting by a fire reading about love winds. Like we might have some images. So what, what is hell? So to see this, let's just get some basic facts here. Uh, the word hell is the English translation of the Greek word Gehenna. Just uh, give that one a try. Gehenna. One more time with a little bit of mm -mm. Gehenna. Henna, yeah, that'll be relevant in a moment. So this is this English translation of the Greek word hell, English translation of the Greek word Gehenna. And that word occurs 12 times in the New Testament. And what you'll find when you kind of survey those 12 occurrences is that Gehenna is more than just an idea, that it is a literal place. Gehenna is a place that's found on the southwest side of the city of Jerusalem. And it is known as this place of the Valley of Hinnom. So you have Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. And you can see it, it's right here. It's that space inside the red circle. And let me just tell you, this place has some history. See, in the biblical imagination, Gehenna is the place that fell under God's judgment. If you go back to Isaiah 7, you can actually see that there's an announcement of judgment that comes over this place. And what you see also is in the history of Israel that, uh, that what rose up in the people in their rebellion under, the, under King Amon was that they would be offering you know, goodwill sacrifices in the temple and then they would descend down into the valley. And they would offer up their children as sacrifices in, the, in fire to the god Molech, who's later called Baal. 
So these are the things, this is the rhythm of worship of the people of Israel, is they're worshiping Yahweh, but they're also trying to appease the God through child sacrifice in the fire. And what happens is that there is like a prophetic judgment pronounced over that physical space. And later what we see is that there's a cementing of this place as a place of judgment. When the reforms come, there's like a revival that breaks out under King Josiah. And so this place then is cemented in the imagination as a place of judgment. It becomes a trash heap. It becomes a place that what you see is it becomes burned. Like how do you get rid of this trash? Well, it is a place of constant burning. It would actually look something like this. And so this is the very real place that Jesus draws upon as a prophetic symbol of death. And when Jesus talks about Gehenna, this is the imagery from which he builds this metaphor of an unquenchable fire. How are we doing? Hell is a literal place. It is, it is not just an idea. It is more than an idea. It is a place, but it's not just a place. It's a reality of judgment. And right now you might be very nervous with the language of literal place and judgment. S stay with me. See, I, I wanna, I, there's a question that at least for me has kind of cut through all of the noise and it is this. The grammar is gonna be awkward, but I think the question is helpful. Um, think with me about the Pharisees again. See, when Jesus is calling them children of hell, he's in some sense saying that you are caught up in the same type of opposition that the people who are sacrificing their children to false gods in the valley are. There's an opposition in you. You are children of hell. And so the question that I have here is when? When is there opposition? Is it future or is it present? Any guesses in the room this morning? When is there opposition? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say present. And, and that's to say that their, their opposition, Jesus is responding to a reality that he sees unfolding. Their opposition is present. In other words, hell is a present reality breaking out through their religiosity. It's almost as though hell is this foreign invader into God's good world, that hell is not just a future thing where judgment rests. It is a present thing. This in some sense is the argument that Bell gets into in his book, Love Wins. And this is, I think, what ruffled all the feathers is it looks at sex trafficking. It looks at the injustice that are done to marginalized people. It looks at the evil around in the world and it says, this is a living hell. And I think there's some accuracy to that. And I think there's, a, like, there's something a bit more than just that. Say later in the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother James, he'll go on to talk about hell. See, most of the time when hell is talked about, it's actually Jesus who's doing the talking about hell. But James is going to pick up the idea of hell as well. And he's going to do so by talking about the tongue. He's going to say that the tongue is like a spark that can set a whole forest ablaze. And that that tongue that sets a forest ablaze, it is itself lit on fire by hell. It's a curious thing the connection between our speech because we can bless one another. We can actually sing blessings to God. What we were just doing, you're, you're the way, you're the truth, you're the life affirming who Jesus claims to be in the gospels. But with the same mouth, we can then go and tear down our neighbor, whether it's through our thumbs or through our actual speech. This is the same reality 
like that our tongue can produce, it can produce moments of sweet bliss and blessing it can produce in the language of James, hell. Are you with me? That hell is this present reality that's breaking out through the religiosity of these people. Now fast forward uh, 2,000 years from James into a coffee shop, me and my buddy Brent. And uh, my, my conversation in that moment about love winning feels like thin compared to what Jesus is talking about. See, the bulk of the conversations that I had had and, and really uh, that I had about hell and really like my understanding until a few years ago had this idea that hell is heaven's opposite. It's like hell is the, the yin to heaven's yang. And it really was just the place that an unrepentant sinner went when they die. It would look something like this. I was quite, quite proud of this graphic. So... Thank you for the affirmation and your giggles. This is what I, I, I thought it was, is that you're just living your life. You're, you're going along. That there's a moment uh, that you, you could in some sense say this moment where you meet Jesus, the, the cross section of your life. And positionally, you would be then with God. You are hidden with God in Christ, but yet you're still living. But then death would become the great impasse. And at death, you would either ascend up into the heavens to be with God or you would descend into hell. Now, I, uh, does this resonate with anybody? Is this like, maybe this is just a caricature, like a straw man. This is what I was, inter I like did the Romans road. I did the great impasse that only Jesus could, he was the bridge, I need, like that was the story that awoke me to the life with Jesus. But I just want to, I just want to ask this question, like, is this the full story? Who, who is the God that we're depicting when that is, yes, love and life and eternality, but if you reject it, then it's bunking up with this guy. Is it the whole story? See, when, when Jesus says to these, you can take that down, Kate. Um, when Jesus says to these religious leaders, which is quite sobering, that their bounded set of beliefs, that that is what produces children of hell. And then in turn, it, it like declares that they themselves are children of hell. This is not just commentary on their future. This is commentary on their present. And my guess is, is that many of us would do well to undergo a sort of paradigm shift when it comes to heaven and hell. Because nowhere, not one place in the Bible do you see hell as heaven's opposite. But you know what you do see? You see this moment of the joint, you, you see the union, you see the fragmenting, and you see the reunion of heaven and earth. The, the story of the scriptures is this story of the creator God completely enveloped with creation, not frustrated by the chaos waters, but there present, inviting humanity to push the bounds of flourishing out into all of creation. It is sin, this invader that comes in and fragments that. The story of the scriptures is God pursuing humanity for the reunification of heaven and earth. You see this littered all over the place. Earth is heaven's complement. Hell is this human-fueled invader into God's good world. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. 
It's as though God holds this space to honor the volition, the free will of humanity. So to the question, is there a hell, insofar as the Bible is concerned, to, to my mind, the answer is yes. That there is indeed a place that is not just real. It's not like we're all just, I don't know, hidden in another dimension or something in the Valley of Hanom, but that is a, like a more than real thing. And what does that look like? I don't know. Like we have this little parable in Luke 16 about Lazarus and the rich man. And some people look and they call this the intermediate state. And they're like, well, if you're hidden with God, then you are in Abraham's bosom, this place of security and intimacy. But if you're not, then apparently there's this impassable gulf that you can't go through. The reality is we don't know. That, that might very well be a spot in between the, the new heavens and the new earth. But when it comes to hell, hell is, hell is a thing that is at the very end of the story. And it seems as though the, answer's question, the Bible's answer to the question, is there a hell, is yes. But the question that presses against our generation, I mean that broadly, is what does that mean? Like if indeed there is a hell, what, what do I do with that as a follower of Jesus? Hell is not a very sexy doctrine. If you go to your coworkers and you say the statements that I said earlier, I don't imagine that they would, I don't know, be stirred in the, like their spirit to follow Jesus. They would probably scoff and say, that is why I don't follow Jesus. So, so what does it mean if indeed there is this hell? Well, I think if we're honest, like the assumption that many of us carry is that hell means something like eternal flames. It means separation from God. And this, after all, this is like since Augustine, 1,500 years, this has been the, the traditional view on hell. And so it's likely that many of us are like, yes, this is the thing. And, and this is kind of the end of the conversation. We're like, this is just the uncomfortable doctrine that I have to sit with. I, I, I don't really have another way around it. And if, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Like, I think I just, I, I'm going to be right there. Or we go to the other side and we say something to the effect of, if this is how the creator God works in the world, I cannot, will not serve a God like that. I, I, how could I? There, you're telling me that there's a God who holds people consciously in torment for all eternity. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. Do you, do you feel this tension? Well... See, to this question, is this really what hell means? There are three general responses. So now this is actually the answer to the questions that you all asked about hell. Here are the theological responses to, to this. Are you ready? They're already in the notes on the app if, or the phone if you're looking, but here we go. Um, through church history, these are the three orthodox positions. The first is that traditional perspective where hell means eternal conscious tournament. And just let the words do the heavy lifting there for you. Uh, eternal, it is everlasting conscious you're aware of it not subconscious that it like it's just going on in the background no conscious like you feel it in torment any guess what torment feels like yeah that's probably the thing so the idea with ect or eternal conscious torment is that um, jesus will return and the dead will all raise there's going to be this judgment at the end of history this if you're reading in the scriptures is called the day of the lord and this is the day when Jesus, who all authority in heaven and earth have been given over to Jesus. And at that point, there is a judgment. And those who are with God will go into eternal life. And those who are not, they will go into eternal punishment. And this is, this is like 
the stakeholder of all this is Matthew 25 is where that language comes. And then in Revelation 14, their smoke will go up forever and ever. These are the passages that folks cling to. By the way, there are six passages in the scriptures that people cling to to really build up this doctrine of eternal conscious torment. But second is annihilationism or conditional immortality where, where hell contains death. And conditional immortality, it, it too affirms that Jesus is claimed to be the way, the truth, the life, the way to the Father. And that rejection of Jesus and his way is a conscious rejection of the creator God. But where this view diverges from eternal conscious torment is that rather than emphasizing the eternality of punishment, the everlasting, it says that the punishment of sin is death which is the absence of life, but life is to be found exclusively in Jesus. So, so, so track with me here, but because this is the part where we could fall asleep. So the wage of sin is death. To be with Jesus is to have life. If you do not have life in Jesus, death is your end. That, that's kind of like a, the way where annihilationists will put the period, like death is the cessation of life because life is contingent or conditional upon relationship to Jesus. And just to be clear, uh, annihilationism is not a product of Jehovah's Witness theology. Jehovah's, if you've ever had like a, a JW roll up and like knock on your door, this is the position on hell that they would hold, but it doesn't follow that just because Jehovah's Witnesses f like believe and affirm annihilationism that this is a doctrine that is created by them. It is simply to say that death and destruction are just that. They are the cessation of life. Or um, just check this one out. Anybody heard of John 3.16? This is like one of the first Bible passages you were given to memorize, right? Okay, let's see if, how we're doing here. This is John 3.16 in the NIV. See if you can just under your breath say it with me. I guess it's on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not eternally be tormented? No. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So annihilationism or conditional immortality would simply say that, that death means death. There's life or there's perishing. So you have eternal conscious torment. You have conditional immortality. And the last orthodox position on hell is called ultimate reconciliation or Christian universalism. And you're like, hold on a second. You just smushed two words together that I don't think go together, Kyle. You said Christian and universalism. So pump the brakes. Um, if you feel any of that, or maybe I'm just projecting. Um, has anybody heard of the Nicene Creed? Okay, yeah. So Nicene Creed is like one of the most foundational documents that is articulating orthodoxy in the life of the church. The dude who was at the like forefront of that is this Gregory of Nyssa fellow. Greg, Christian universalist. So well within the bounds of orthodoxy. This is what ultimate reconciliation would say. It's like uh, contrary to its common like depiction, ultimate reconciliation does affirm that hell is an irreducible fact of Jesus's teaching. Like you just don't get rid of justice of the justice of God coming to bear on evil. This is the caveat though, that though hell is a present reality with future implications, rather than eternal punishment or death, ultimate reconciliation makes the point that God's love is such that it will pursue everyone beyond the grave. 
And for some of you, you're like, I don't know about that. For some, that, this is the place that they land. And I would say it is within the bounds of orthodoxy because it's, it's like this. This is where somebody who holds ultimate reconciliation would land. They would say, it's, well, Paul says this to the church in Rome in, in Romans 5.18. By the way, how often does the church go to Romans as like a place to stake a claim? Like all the freaking time. So here you go. Here's another one. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. There's this little tool that you learn when you're learning to study the Bible. It's that you look at the verse in and of itself to make sense of the words that are there. It's just like called studying in context. You start with the verse. If you see some um, resonance there in the verse, then you, you land there and you're like, oh, that's helpful. That's the author helping me to understand it. If not, then you go to the, the paragraph, the passage, the chapter, other writings from the same person. So right here you have this parallel interest. This is so interesting. All receive condemnation through the trespass. This is referring to uh, the rebellion in the garden. But then through, the, through the, the righteous act, this is Jesus on the cross, this results in this right standing for all people. This is the motivation of ultimate reconciliation. I, I guess this is where it all comes together. Like whatever you think is the most compelling position on hell, great. I, I frankly don't care. <laughs> now, I am also not representative of all of Gateway's theology. I am not the gatekeeper for theology here. Our goal is to be a church that is neither progressive or conservative, but to be a Jesus church, which means that we want to more disagree well than think we have every answer buttoned up. And so whatever position you come to on this, we would say, great, because I think that we can hold the tension and hold on to Jesus together. That is actually a more difficult thing to do than you might think. But but, but what I want to get a, across here is that all three of these views affirm the reality of hell. They, they affirm the tragedy of hell, and they just imagine the duration differently. So I don't think as followers of Jesus that we get to dismiss hell. I don't think that we get to dismiss the justice of God coming to bear on evil. And I don't think that we get to dismiss a God whose desire is that no one would perish, but that all would come and have everlasting life. I think we get to live into, the ten, into that tension. So what are we to do? This is my attempt at uh, closing up a sermon on hell. I would invite us to consider the Pharisees again. I, you see, uh, the curious thing, despite the Pharisees getting a lot of shade in the church, the Pharisees had a beautiful vision for life. They had this vision where they had a vision of, of consecration. Every home holy, every home like a little temple where the personal or the presence of God would be mediated through like to their neighbors. It would be this, it's this picture of holiness. It's actually quite beautiful. The difficulty is that it's only, it would cost a lot of money to keep it up. And um, it's kind of ridiculous because it's not just for the, like the moral code of the law given by Moses. It's actually, they, they call it uh, keeping fences. They would build this barrier. They would create a boundary and they would say, this is actually the place where we need to live. So it's like, if this is the edge of the cliff and this is where disobedience happens, what we're going to do is we're going to go like 10 miles inland from the cliff and say, that's actually the boundary now. Don't pass that. 
So there's some frustration in there, but the, the motivation is beautiful. So this is the question. We're asking, what do we do? And we consider the Pharisees. Well, how do you go from a beautiful vision of consecration and holiness to becoming called children of hell? How do you devolve from a vision of holiness and consecration before God to the hellish life of a Pharisee described by Jesus? And I think it happens slowly and surely. Lewis again talks about the, the, the path to hell is not one that's like death metal, like Slayer or something, like, I don't know, choosing to dress goth or something like that. It is slow and easy underfoot. So here, again, your boy Clive Staples with some wisdom on the, the slow and steady movement toward a hellish life. And this is a bit of a lengthy quote. Are you ready for this? Okay, gird your loins, church. Hey, sorry. Uh, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. In taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. How do you get from a vision of holiness to a hellish life of a Pharisee? through each moment. Just consider your past week. And this is not like a moment where the pastor shames the church to like motivate you to do something. Just consider your past week. Consider the moments where at, at some conscious level, you're aware that this is moving against the values that you hold and yet you persist. For a long time, when Game of Thrones was like a popular thing, I would have friends go, I just got to get through it. Do you? Like, do you have to get through soft porn? I never asked them that question, but it would bubble up. So just consider those moments. And now consider the moment here, like you, through your own will, no coercion like came here. You came to encounter something, hope, Jesus, love, like, I don't know, but you came here. So there is a, a choice that you have, an orientation to move toward something that in Lewis's words is, is cultivating one of heaven or one of hell. You see, I think tradition is a beautiful thing. It provides rhythms and fixtures and meanings. Like if you stick around this church, I hope for more tradition. I, I tell you what, I'm feeling some fresh energy around formation. Like I want to see us formed into people of love. And you know what you need to form people? You need some like concrete things, maybe not programs, but you need some spaces where people can show up and be with one another to like imagine a new type of life with Jesus. We need some traditions. We're trying to build some here. 
And though tradition can be beautiful, it can also become a, a space where we moralize our preferences and hold them like boundaries over and against one another. My guess is, and this seems to be the story of most people at Gateway, is that you come here because you are coming from a context that moralized preferences and held them as a boundary marker of faithfulness to Jesus. And if we're a little bit more charismatic, we'd be going like, amen, amen, that's where, yeah, that's why I'm here. We moralize our preferences and then we like recruit Jesus to hold them up. This is what the Pharisees were doing. See, most of us have experienced Jesus mediated through tradition, either tradition of the church or tradition in politics, but this is often how we've experienced Jesus. But think about this. When Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't get down with any tradition. Clearly, he's not hanging out with the Pharisees. He calls them whitewashed chips, you brood of vipers. If your friend called, I don't know what the like, equivalent of that is today, um, but let's just say that's not friendly speech. So the Pharisees are not with Jesus. J Jesus doesn't get political with the Sadducees. Jesus doesn't get radical with the Essenes in the desert. Jesus doesn't get violent with the Zealots. Jesus holds space for an entirely new thing to break out and it's called the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is doing. And this is what's remarkable about Jesus still to this day is he centers himself. See, what's so curious is we are often the inflection point of our lives. Jesus has actually done this first. Jesus was the first one living his best life, except he did so to empty his life, not to fill it up. This, this is what it looks like when Jesus centers himself. He doesn't reinforce a boundary around a particular set of religious observance or form. Jesus places himself at the center, and this is what it is. It's the, it's the self-emptying space of the cross. And what you see is that when Jesus is at the center, you can actually be quite close to Jesus yet moving away. You can have all the vestiges of religious forms. You can have the right language. You can know the arguments. You can have the doctrine. You can even like have the image. Instagram handle, like loved by God. Like that's your, that's your little bio. Or you can be the, what it looks like. It's super far away from Jesus, but you are moving toward him because you're learning that the place of significance is not necessarily the center of yourself. It, it might just be intimacy with Jesus because allegiance to Jesus does not mean that you affirm a certain set of doctrines. It might be that, part of it. But allegiance to Jesus is about receiving Jesus as the inflection point of your life. And I want you to hear this word. Just uh, turn to your neighbor and say, receive. N now turn to the neighbor you, f you uh, chose not to say that first and say, receive. Okay. Anybody left out here? Let me just look at you say, receive. Okay. Um, nobody said it to me. What's up with that? I'm just kidding. Um, there's a difference between receiving and recognizing. You can recognize some truth, but Jesus is inviting us to receive him as such. You can recognize the resurrection, but it's another thing to live with the resurrection life, which by the way is like really difficult <laughs> to not try and muster up the energy, but to like allow the strength of God to empower our weakness. Allegiance with Jesus is about receiving Jesus as the inflection point. And I imagine some of you are like, man, that sounds nice. And yet you're also a little nervous because you saw Jesus and the cross at the center and you're much more comfortable with the set of bounded beliefs. 
You're like, are you telling me that if I can just choose, is this like a choose your own adventure church? Like here's orthodoxy and just kind of step in there and just, I don't know, piece it all together? Kind of, but also kind of not. I'm not saying that like moral and ethical boundaries are dismissed. I'm not saying that the moral and ethical teachings of, just, of Jesus are irrelevant. I'm 100% not saying that. Instead, I'm saying that to place heavy burdens on people, hear this, to place heavy burdens on people as an entrance requirement into the kingdom of God is a distortion of the gospel. One day I was in seminary and I was uh, in a room. It was in between classes. It was a, it was an interesting experience. It was a night school. It was a commuter school. And so I would be there with people mostly who were just trying to, they weren't really trying to get a degree. They're faithfully serving, but there were some folks who were trying to get trained. And I went to a pretty uh, conservative seminary. And here's a reflection of that posture. So it's um, I, in the MDiv program is mostly men, surprise. And it's me, my friend Chris, and I forget who the other guy was, and then a gal who's in the MDiv program. And what we said to her was essentially this, if you continue in this program and continue to go to a church where there's a woman who's the senior pastor, you are living in sin. Just let that settle in. You're, I'm, I get to be the pastor here. That's the type of speech I carried about, I don't know, 10 years ago. That's the type of pronouncement that I was leveling. I had created a boundary for her faithfulness to Jesus and it was, it was um, you need to be a man. So I just wanna say, um, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna talk about that. So if you wanna know if anything shifted, come on back. Um, that is a distortion of the gospel. That is a heavy burden that she ought not to have, like we ought to have been like, how do we empower you? How do we equip you? What, like, can we give up? Like all of those questions are the better questions to ask. See the way of Jesus, it is, it is about belonging. It is about belonging before believing and believing before becoming. But what we do is we flip it. We flip the system and we passively like say, okay, put on these characters, become this type of person and then you'll have the right beliefs to belong. Now, I understand that um, belonging before believing and believing before becoming is quite uncomfortable. But how did you come to Jesus? Did you believe all this stuff and then trust him? If you're like me, it was like the faithfulness of a friend to invite you to Christian spaces for two years and then the cumulative weight of the gospel like wore down on the hardness of your heart and you were like, yes, I'll do this Jesus thing. It is the kindness of God that leads us to Jesus. Did you know that like God is here not with a vindictive spirit, but it is the kindness of God that is moving toward us. By the way, this is about how long teachings are. So I'm um, sorry, but I'm not that sorry. But oh, Frida, I am sorry. Um, so I just, let's just close here.
we might have this impulse to, to cultivate comfort with certainty, but this is what Jesus says. If you just like hang out in the gospel according to John for a minute, this is what you'll encounter. It, it, Jesus is saying things like this. If you're hungry, I am the bread of the life. Come and have your fill. If you're thirsty, I'm the living water. Come, drink, be satisfied. If you're lonely, I'm the good shepherd. I will receive you. If you're excluded, I'm the door wide open to receive you. If you lack fruit, I am the true vine. If you're in darkness, I am the light of the world. If you're disconnected, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you are as though dead, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what Jesus spoke to death. I am life. So regardless of what you think about hell, Jesus has said, I am the life. Life and satisfaction and comfort and belonging and nourishment and clarity, they all come to you from Jesus. They are not mediated by me or this church or the capital C church. Although we are the container that Jesus some, for some reason continues to move through, um, these things are on offer now. Not when you leave here today, like right now. Life and satisfaction and comfort and belonging and nourishment and clarity, they come to us through Jesus. Mm -hmm.